In Genesis chapter 13, we read that Abraham and Lot were there together. This is not long after Abraham's call. But they both had a lot of livestock. The land where they were couldn't handle both people's land or livestock. So, in chapter 13, Abraham said, You choose. If you want this land down here, I'll go and take this land. If you want this land, I'll take this land. Abraham didn't want the strife. Abraham looked at the land, Lot looked at the land, and Lot saw that the land that he was going to take, Genesis chapter 13, I thought I marked it, but I didn't. In Genesis chapter 13, Lot lifted up his eyes, verse 10, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then we're told by God that now the men of Sodom were great, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 46, God comparing his people to the nations of the world that had gone out and served false gods and had basically had not followed his ways, says this, but this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her sisters, she and her daughters had pride excess food and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy they were haughty and did an abomination before me so I removed them when I saw it you know that is a pretty sad situation for the people there Peter and Jude wrote about false teachers And in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed to them chains chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept in judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows God's watching. Last week, I talked about evil 
evil in our world. And noted that it was perhaps, and I'll mention it again, that it is just maybe because man forgot God, walked away from God. God walked away from us. How do we respond to evil in our world? I'm glad that Peter tells us about Lot. Genesis doesn't give us that much information. It's good to know that Lot maintained his righteous calling. Though he lived among a city of ungodly people, but his entire being was affected. The psalmist writes, David, in chapter 58, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. So that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or the one of, or the cunning of the ench- of the enchanter. Proverbs chapter ten through eighteen deals with the contrast of the wicked and the upright. How do we respond in our world today to the evil that abounds around us? That's the question. Are we distressed? Are we oppressed by the lawless deeds that we see? Are our souls tormented day by day when we see these things that go on around us? Righteous indignation. I know what the psalmist said in chapter 4. Paul would quote that in Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. But what about righteous anger? And I'm not just saying that my anger because I get upset is godly anger. But I would define it as strong displeasure at something considered unjust, offensive, insulting, or base. Anger that's aroused by something unjust, mean, or unworthy. It is being upset because God's standards have been violated. You know, we live in a world where everyone clamors for their rights. It was interesting, I read a little snippet about Lou Holtz, the difference in players during his football players in his early coaching years and today. And he said, well, in my, gen- in my teams, they talked about their responsibilities and obligations. Today they talk about rights and privileges. We have come a long way and it's not been all that good. If your rights are violated, you get angry. But that doesn't mean it qualifies as righteous indignation. You may be indignant. You may be angry. But it may not be God's anger. Today it's not politically correct to make judgments on any matter of morality that we see. But I submit to you that we cannot be guided by God's word without getting upset about some things. God's way is the right way. Any other way is the wrong way. So in Ezekiel chapter 9, or chapters 8 and 9, here's what's going on. 
My my Bible just says in chapter 8, abominations in the temple. And he says the following. In the sixth year of the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire. Above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness of gleaming metal. He was taken up to see God. It brought me in to see visions of God to Jerusalem. And verse 4, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision in the val- I saw in the valley. Verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination in the house of Israel that, are, that they are committing to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. Chapter 8 is stressing the religious corruption of the people of Jerusalem. Ezekiel can see that as he's taken to see the visions of God that God sees in this wicked city. Chapter 9 shows God's judgment upon those falling down upon those who have not been marked out by God. He told them, he says, the man, he says, I called to the man clothed in linen, verse 3, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after him. And strike, your eyes shall not spare, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but touch no one on whom is my mark, and begin at the sanctuary. God was passing judgment. This is Ezekiel's vision that he's seeing. God was going to judge Judah for their sins. Chapter 10 speaks of the wicked, burning of the wicked in the city with coals of fire between the cherubim and tells of the destruction of the city as the work of the cherubim, which have been described in chapter 1. Chapter 11 stresses the political and moral corruption of all the people. They left God, and God would pass judgment. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, we have three categories here. There are those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in the city. And we have blatant sinners. Those who are doing those detestable things. And then maybe we have the rest. Those who are in the camp, they're in the city, but they're not on either side. You know, they're kind of in the middle. They have friends on both sides. They consider themselves good, and sometimes I wonder if this isn't the way it is today. Some people just shake their heads, roll their eyes in in disbelief and say, can't do anything about it. And there may be some truth to that. I understand that. Others may not like what's going on, but they'll just simply say, but who am I to judge? Others accept it. Some may even approve of it. Paul rebuked in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church in Corinth, because they were accepting a sin in their midst of a man who had his father's wife. 
A sin that the Gentiles wouldn't condone. And Paul said it is actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Paul says this cannot be. I know that you want to extend grace to God's people. But this man is doing something terrible. And he needs to be cast out. You and I might wonder what the big deal is sometimes. What's the big deal about sin after all? What's the big deal about what we see going on in our world? Well, part of it, it desensitizes you. But we can talk about more of that in a moment. But realize this from Ezekiel. That out of all the people in the city, only those who grieved and lamented over the sins that were done in the city got the mark that would say, you're my people. Kind of reminiscent almost of the Passover. When the blood was put at the side of the doors and on top, God would see, my people are in this house. I'll pass over them. Now Ezekiel is saying that they're going to be marked out. God knows who his people are. And they're the ones who grieve and lament over the things that God grieves and laments. So it is very important to have a strong opposition to sin. Sin is important to God. God is holy. In Exodus he told the people, you shall be holy because I am. In Leviticus. You shall be holy because I am holy. Peter would quote that in 1 Peter chapter 1. God wants his people to be holy, set apart, different from the world. The people of Sodom that saw Lot were, that Lot saw were shameless. If Lot had not been shocked by what he saw, or had stayed there much longer, he might have gradually accepted their lifestyle and joined in it with them. And so we have... Two popular ways of doing this, of dealing with it, is that we're going to deny sin. You can't judge them. They're just different. Or you're going to minimize it. But we have to remember that what makes God angry is the perversion of his goodness. The turning of wrong with what he made right. And God calls this perversion evil. Evil twists and defigures God's glory. Vandalizing what is the most valuable, the profaning what is the most holy. Evil poisons and distorts reality, resulting in destruction of joy for every creature that chooses the perversion over God's good. And so God's righteousness demands his anger over such destructive perversion. And then he meets it out with commensurate justice to those who commit such evil. That which offends God should must offend God's people. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, concerning Noah, I mean concerning Lot. He rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now God knows how to protect us. In the midst of all that evil, he knows he knew Lot was his. And he was going to save Lot. As in Ezekiel's vision, 
A man went out and put a mark on the forehead of those who grieved and lamented over the things that they saw. God knows his people. But his people must still be offended by what offends God. So what's your greatest defense against sin so that you and I don't get caught up in it? Someone once said, One great, our greatest security against sin lies in being shocked at it. I don't think too many people are shocked anymore. Often when evil first, evils first emerge, people are shocked. But as time goes on, they cease to be shocked. They begin to be more accepting. We can see that in movies. We can see that in entertainment. What once was, you don't go there. Now it's you go anywhere you want to go. As Christians, we should, be, we should be shocked at the sinfulness of the world all around us, even though we know it occurs. The reason that evil is in the world is due to the fact that man has walked away from God, as I said last week. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the close, really, man has suppressed and ignored the truth about God. And when you do that, you fail to honor God. And you choose to worship everything else up to and including yourself. And so God gave them up, Paul said. Man walked away from God and God said, okay, go your own way. But there are those, just like Lot, just as those who Ezekiel saw in his vision, that grieve and lament over the city. Now, there are some predictable dangers about getting involved and getting so upset in society about society, we could become self-righteous. In Luke 18, verse 9, there was a man that went up to pray. Two men, actually, in that parable. And one man just patted himself on the back. You know the man I'm talking about. I give, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all that I have. But only the one man went up there and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. We could isolate ourselves from people. Jesus told his disciples, pray that his disciples would not be of the world, but he sent them into the world. You see, and I like what we've seen on Sunday nights with our video series with Ray Vanderlei. You know, he's been talking about how it was in Egypt for God's people. People of Abraham. They lived in slavery. That's all they knew. And their slavery then wasn't like what it was maybe in the early days of our colony here in the United States. Thirteen colonies. And in the Civil War, pre-Civil War South. They had everything they wanted. Yeah, they didn't have maybe their freedom. They had to do some hard work that maybe they didn't care for. But they still had a lot. And so when they left, they longed for the things of Egypt. The food that they had, even though they were slaves. And so Ray says, you know, not only did God have to take the people of Israel out of Egypt, he now had to take the Egypt out of the people. And I like that because that's where we are today. We're not to be of the world even though we are in the world and sometimes we've just got to get the world out of ourselves the pharisees of the days of jesus were appalled by the sins of society 
So much so that they did become hypocritical in many ways. We know that. They wouldn't allow anyone to touch them because if they did, they'd have to bathe so that they might be ceremonially pure. They would tell people that they were going to hell, but they had no cure for the problem. And that's why Jesus was so popular. He didn't make light of the sins of the people, but he offered a new hope and a new beginning. The third danger, of course, is discouragement, leading to depression. When you focus on the sinfulness of the world, the task seems hopeless. How are we going to reach these people? It's by maintaining connection with God, we keep our perspective and focus. And we do it one person at a time. You reach that one person. How are we going to get rid of evil in this world? One person at a time. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. When you bring one to Christ, their world changes. When you ground them in Christ, their world changes and they become faithful and followers of Jesus. So how do we develop righteous indignation, righteous anger? Well, the Old Testament gives us some ideas. The psalmist would say in chapter one, which is a good one, summarizes it all perhaps. Saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Stay away from evil people. Unless you're trying to reach them with the gospel, and then be very careful so you don't get caught up in what they're teaching. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When you don't walk in their way, you're not listening to their counsel, You're not standing in the way, walking along with them. You're not sitting with them. Your delight's in the law of the Lord. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. The warning is, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When we recognize that if we get caught up in this, we will perish. It will keep us away from it. In the 119th Psalm, in verse 77, the psalmist says, Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And we have this thing about law, and we think it's, oh, now we're in the New Testament, we're under grace. What he's saying is, God's Word is my delight. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Verses 111 and 174 of the 119th Psalm. So we focus on God, on His way. We focus on Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us how to walk and know that we're going to be saved. In verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Your virtue knowledge, your knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, 
Godliness with brotherly kindness and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours in increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we walk in the ways of God. We grow. We are rooted, firmly established, as we talked in Colossians chapter 2 today. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We practice the things of God. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. We grieve and lament. And hopefully in that grieving over the sins of the world, we'll be motivated to reach out and save one. Save another from the way in which they're going. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of God's holiness. That's what makes man, that's what makes sin serious. In Isaiah chapter 6, a verse that I know you're familiar with, prior to seeing Isaiah seeing God in his vision, how do you think he felt about himself? He's just going along. I mean, he's a prophet. He knows. This is early in his call, right? Probably felt pretty good about himself. And we're pretty much like that, too. And then you see God. He saw God, his holiness, caused him to see God as God sees and responds to him. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. You know, Peter gave a similar response in Luke chapter 5. Dead casts him, went out on the boat, fishing. This is early on in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus tells them, you know, put out for a catch. And they say, we toiled all night, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, Luke chapter 5, verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter didn't see that when Jesus first appeared on the scene. No, it was, he was out there by the lake of Gennesaret. And Jesus got into one of the boats. He said, would you please put out just a little bit so the people can hear me? And he heard this teaching of Jesus. And he was probably, you know, thinking, man, this guy has something to say. This is really good. I like what I'm hearing. It's like going to a gospel meeting and hearing a different preacher who shares something in a way that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And now Jesus says, okay, I'm done with my teaching. Why don't you put out just a little ways deeper into deeper water? Let your nets down. 
Oh, we've, we worked all night long. It was hard. But you know what? I'll humor you. I'll go along with you. Yeah, you were, I'll do it. And then they catch so many fish that their boat, their companion's boat comes over. And they're both about to sink. And Peter reflected on the teaching of Jesus. And he reflected on what's going on now. And he says, this is more than a teacher. Depart from me. I'm a man. I'm unclean. Leave me. One describes sin in this way. Sin is like some sort of terrible virus that clings to us all. Many years ago, some of us were able to witness a doctor perform a surgery. We gathered around. We saw that the doctor had arranged all the instruments on a sterile cloth on the table. Suddenly, one of the instruments was dropped to the floor, and one of the group, without thinking, reached down to pick it up and laid it back on the sterile cloth. And the doctor just screamed. Why? Because it contaminated the sterile field. It might have been inadvertently, by picking it up off the floor, touching another instrument. It might induce, introduce something into the person having the surgery. They had to stop. They had to get new instruments that were clean, that were sterile. That's how God looks upon us when he sees sin. So when you find yourself falling to sin, see it as God sees it. So that you'll stay away from it. It's been 50 years. 1973, Dr. Carl Menninger, psychiatrist, medical doctor, wrote his book, Whatever Happened to Sin? Saying the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous, a serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word, along with the notion... Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Hmm. Makes you think maybe they don't. Charles Swindoll writes in a brief article remembering what Dr. Menninger wrote, saying that he reintroduced sin into the vocabulary of America. And this is what he said. This is what Swindoll wrote in April of 2019. A bomb exploded in our nation some years ago, in mid-America of all places. The fuse was lit in the mind of Carl Menninger, but its effect was not felt until his pen detonated the blasting cap. Suddenly, without prior warning, boom! His book, Whatever Became a Sin, stunned and shocked his colleagues. Most of Menninger's peers had put that hated word to bed decades ago. But now Carl Menninger, psychiatrist, M.D., the Freud of America, whose book The Human Mind had introduced psychiatry to American people back in the 1930s, that respected, competent pioneer of psychiatry actually had the gall to reintroduce sin into the vocabulary. All had been relatively quiet on the Western Front. America was still leaking licking its wounds from riots, campus rebellions, political assassinations of the 60s. We're biting the bullet of a prolonged war in Southeast Asia. We were hearing rumblings of strange names back then. 
ecological concerns, energy crises, do your own thing. Most of us sensed that trouble was brewing. Something was wrong, but none dared to call it sin. Maybe our president would admit it. Lincoln did way back in, 19, in 1863. Eisenhower did, borrowing the words of Lincoln when the day of prayer rolled around 90 years later, saying it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence and their overruling upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with the assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. Sin. Dr. Menninger came, who was gutsy enough to declare the truth. Was what was said new? Not at all. It had been there all the time. It just needed to be said. We have to have the courage to say that. We have to have the courage to call sin, sin. We have to have the courage to be offended by the things that offend our God. Because that's what will take us to that person, to share with them the gospel of Christ. Because when we know that they've offended God and we don't want them to go to hell, we'll want them to have a better life. We'll reach out to them to share with them the gospel. And that's what will take them and change their lives. So that they won't be conformed to this world, but they'll be changed. They'll be transformed. By the renewing of their mind and the life that they have in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about. Whatever happens to sin is still alive and well, unfortunately. But one day, God is going to judge sin. He's going to call it all to an end. And those who are His will be taken to be with Him. If you're not His today, you can't be. All of us are ready. If you obey the gospel one time, maybe you've been struggling with some things and you said, you know, I need to get back right with God. You could do it right there where you sit and ask God to forgive you, or you can come forward and ask your brothers and sisters to pray with you. It may be that maybe you're just hurting today for some reason, and you just don't know what to do. You're just in pain. We'll listen to your request about that. We'll pray with you for that reason as well. If you haven't even responded to the invitation of Jesus, please come to Him while we stand and while we sing.